If you don't mind, let's just uh, close our eyes and just pray for a minute. Um, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. I think every single one of us here would love to meet with you today. You know, whether we're exploring Christianity, whether we've been walking with you for a long time, uh, some of us have got huge needs, some of us have got huge questions. And I just ask you, Jesus, to speak through me and to speak to each one of our hearts and minds. We'd love to hear your voice, your word, your will, your way for us today. So please lift our heads to see you and your beauty. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think uh, quite a few of you would know my story because I'm often up here talking on Sundays. But I became a Christian when I was 12 years old. It was a life-changing moment for me. But probably for the next six or seven years, very little happened in my faith. I was playing in the shallow ends of what it meant to be a Christian. So I didn't grow much at all. And I think that's something probably most of us want to do. We want to grow. You know, we want to get bigger. We want to change. We want to advance. We want to take steps forward. So since uh, that time, when I was 12, I've grown a lot. I'm now 33 years old. And as you can see, fully grown up. Haven't grown a lot heart-wise, but hair-wise, I've grown a lot. A lot of beard hair, eyebrow hair, nose and ear hair, I've grown. And beyond kind of just the physical growth, I've grown spiritually. You know, I've grown a lot in my faith from where I was that night as a 12-year-old boy in Sarnia Assembly School or whatever it was at that youth rally I went to. But that was a life-changing moment for me. You know, I remember going to that as a 12-year-old because of my mates. You know, I went there to uh, meet girls and laugh with my friends, and there were fed cook on sale, which were delicious. I was living the dream as a 12-year-old. And uh, that was a special evening. I don't remember a lot about it. I vaguely remember the space, the outside area, the inside area. I don't remember who preached. I don't remember the message. But I remember at the end of that time, the end of that talk, he stood up and he said something like, who needs to know Jesus as their Savior tonight? Who needs to know that their sins are forgiven? Who needs to be reconciled to God? Who wants to be a son or a daughter of God today? And the whole way through, I'm like, me, I want to. I want that. I want that. I need that, you know? And it wasn't just that the message had stood out to me. I don't remember a thing he said. But it was that my heart was beating with the fact that this was true. You know, it was beyond just a logical thing. Maybe it was an amazing preach or not. But it was like the Holy Spirit had done something inside of me, and I knew I needed to respond. This was true. Jesus was who he said he was. You know, Jesus says of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That evening I believed it, you know, that he is who he says he is. He is God, the only way to the Father, the Savior of the world. And I wanted in. So he said, if that's for you tonight, would you raise your hand? And like, I didn't want anyone to see me raise my hand, but I knew this was important. I was like, I can get over the embarrassment of raising my hand for the sake of salvation and God and eternity and all of those big things, you know. It's worth raising your hand over. But it was awkward. You know, I didn't really want my friends to see me raise my hand. I was like... What are they going to think of me doing that? Firstly, are they going to think I'm a sinner, you know, because this guy's been talking about sin and salvation and forgiveness and Jesus and all of that. So I'm going, yep, that's me. I'm a sinner. They're all going to look and see me and go, yeah, of course, you know, he needed it. Of course he needed to raise his hand. Or maybe they'd think, why didn't you do this years ago? Like, why are you only becoming a Christian now? And all of these weird thoughts were going on in my head, probably Satan kind of trying to influence me in a negative way. But I put up my hand. I responded, and I thought, this guy's going to pray for us now. And he did the old preacher switcheroo that some of you might have seen preachers do before. I was new to this whole church game. I didn't know this thing. And he said, if you've got your hand in the air, can I ask you to stand and go out of the hall? If you're new here today, we're not going to do that today. I just want, I want to put that out of your mind. We've probably never done that before here on a Sunday. But I was locked in, you know, a hand in the air, like, uh, he can see me, probably some other people can see me. I don't want to stand up and leave the hall 
But I know I need to. Like, this is a really important moment. I need to respond. I need to go out. So I think out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of my best mates leave the hall, and I thought, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. I've got to do this. This is life and death. This is significant. And I got up, and I went out. And God is so kind, you know, like in his providence, the person who greeted us at the door was a teacher at the school we went to. His name was Keith Hawes, and he was the one who spoke to us. And he answered some of our questions, and he prayed with us. I think he did that cheesy diagram that you might have seen if you've been in church for a while. There's like God on one side and man on the other, and there's this like deep crevice, and it's super wide, and you can't cross it on your own. So God had to bring the cross to be the bridge between these two sides so that God could come and take us across to him. If you've never seen it before, it's really cheesy, but really, really helpful. You know, for me as a little 12-year-old, that did help me to get what this gospel thing was all about and responded to it. So Danny and I, we spoke to this guy, and we asked him our questions, and he prayed with us. And that evening, we became Christians, you know. That was a life-changing, paradigm-shifting, I don't know, eternity-changing moment for me. And I remember leaving there convinced that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life but definitely a baby in my faith. Super shallow. I knew very little else. And probably for the next six or so years, I learned little bits and pieces about what it meant to be a Christian, but very, very little. Fast forward to now. 15 years later, I'm 33 years old. I've grown a lot since then, as we talked about the hair thing. But beyond that, I've grown to understand what Christianity is all about so much more than I did that evening when I was 12, you know. I know the Bible a lot better. I know a lot more about God than I did back then. But beyond just like an information thing, I've gotten to know God over 21 years of, I guess, spending time with him in prayer and reading through the Bible and worshiping and times like this. As I've met with God and the Spirit of God has been at work inside of me, I've gotten to know God. Not only that, it's through those times with him, I've been changed. Like the way I see the world has changed because of my times with God. My, my heart has changed. My character has changed. I, as much as I wasn't a bad 12-year-old, I'm a very different person. I think I'm a lot more like Jesus than I was when I was 12 now as a 33-year-old. I've changed and grown a lot. Last night I was at a 90s-themed party, and I had a middle parting. It was really bad. Uh, Paul really wanted me to do it for today. And I just you wouldn't have respected me. You would have left. You wouldn't have listened to me today. My hair was curled in like little horns in the middle, you know, to just show how cool I was. That was what a 12-year-old at Kloof Senior Primary wanted his hair to look like at the time. My hair was really curled in with that deep part down the middle. Very, very cool. I'm so grateful I've changed and grown over the last 21 years, you know. And I'm sure you feel the same. But at the same time, I have not grown nearly as much as I would have liked to. You know, as an 18-year-old, passionately starting to serve God, I've had many ups and downs since then. I think I thought by now I would have conquered sin in my life, you know. Sin would be gone. That would be a thing of the past. I would be glowing, resplendent in glory, my face shining like Moses on top of that mountain. I have to cover my face with a veil so that you would not be blown away by my holiness and righteousness and awesomeness. And sadly, that's not true. The book of Acts, there's these moments where people walk past Peter's shadow and they're healed. And they say, Paul, would you send us these handkerchiefs you've touched with the power of God on them that we might touch them and be healed? I was like... That'll be me soon. I'll be that guy. <laughs> Alas, I'm still not there. I've got a long way to go. I'm not the man I thought I would be at 33. The other day I was driving to do a wedding. Uh, for those of you who know Dale and Kerry Franklin, I was going to their wedding. I was in the car alone and I was listening to a sermon on marriage. It was out of Ephesians chapter 5. 
I had prepared. I wasn't just trying to do crib notes for, I was ready. I was ready. This was just something I wanted to listen to. And I was driving along, preparing to do their wedding, listening to the sermon. And this is something I've preached here multiple times. You know, I've gone through this. I know it. I've listened to stuff on this. I know this passage well. And Ephesians 5 verse 25 popped out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I was sitting in the car as this guy was speaking and saying, what the Bible is saying to husbands there is die. Jesus died for the church. Husbands, die for your wives. Lay down your lives for your wives. Surrender everything to your wives. And I was deeply convicted by the Spirit. It was like one of those moments. I'm sure many of you in this room have experienced this. Sometimes God opens up your heart just quickly and shows you all the junk that's inside, and then he shuts it so you don't have to look at it for too long. This was like one of those moments where he just showed me the selfishness in my husbanding, in my marriage, the areas where I didn't want to die or lay down my life or serve my wife or surrender to her, you know, the areas where I didn't want to be the one who laid down my life. I was deeply convicted about that. How do I need to serve her so that she will flourish and grow? And I think my life is going to be full of many of those moments as the Spirit convicts me and is at work in me and shows me these areas. Because God is so gracious to not do it all at once. Shows us little things that He wants us to work on and then empowers us to do them. But I think probably we all have a long way to go. I was reading recently, um, a pastor named John Piper was asked, what makes you doubt that God exists? And he answered and he said, how slow the process of sanctification has been in my life. He's been a Christian for almost 60 years, a pastor for over 50 years. He's in his 70s. And he's saying, you know what probably makes me doubt God the most? Is how slowly I've changed in the faith and how little I am like Jesus compared to how far along I thought I would be. Eugene Peterson calls this the long obedience in the same direction. The fact that transformation is not instant. It's a slow, gradual process of becoming more and more like Jesus as he works in our hearts and our lives. But I want to ask, how do we respond to this? You know, Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Grant, I'm the same. You know, I've been following Jesus for a while, and I feel like I've stalled. Um, it's like I've hit neutral, and I'm not going forward, but I'm not going backward. I just kind of am. And I'm not really excited about Jesus at the moment. I'm a little bit bored in my faith, just kind of going through the motions, but not really enjoying this whole thing so much. I think there's this reality that we so easily get distracted by the things that are going on around us. You know, life is busy. I don't think anyone in this room is going to say, ah, it's easy. You know, I've got it easy. Life is busy. We've got lots going on. There's lots of things distracting us all of the time. There's troubles and problems that come upon us. There's desires in our heart that are waging for our attention and want us to act on them. So how do we avoid all of that? I want you to know, I think this morning, the least inspiring message I could preach is how to be a better person or how to be a good Christian. That's not what this message is. But I think for those of us who want to grow, how do we, when we're in this kind of place, continue to grow to know God? How do we grow to live out his ways? How do we overcome sin and struggles? How do we do the things Jesus did? How do we live the life that is truly life that he's promised us? How do we grow into all of that and advance into all of that? That's you today. I think this message is for you. And Peter, who was one of the apostles, one of Jesus's closest friends, was the right kind of man to tell us how to do this because he messed up so much. He definitely had moments of growing and kind of sinking in his faith. And at the end of his life, he writes the book of 2 Peter. He's probably a couple of months away from death. He's probably on death row in Rome. 
He knows he's never going to see these people again, but he knows they're in trouble, that they're not in a good place with Jesus. And he writes to them to remind them to grow in grace and to keep growing. So this morning, we're going to read from 2 Peter 1, from verse 3 to verse 9. should pop up on the screen just behind me, but you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. And it says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Basically, the big idea of what he's saying there is God has given you everything you need to live a godly life by his power and his grace. He's given it to you already. So I don't know um, how many of you would profess to be a DIY expert in the room. Anyone want to claim it? Like you're literally putting yourself out there. I'm definitely not. Oh, well, Dave is. Dave's a bit of an inventor here in the front. He knows what he's doing. I'm not a big DIY guy. I think Brendan's helped me with a lot of different small jobs at home, which I should know how to do. But I felt like a DIY hero from time to time when Shell's ordered like a basic table, which comes with like four parts, all parts included, the tools in there, the screws are in there, or nuts or bolts, whatever it is. If you need an Allen key, it's in there. The instructions are in there. There's like five things you need to do. And I pull this out. I'm like, Shell, don't worry. I've got this. I've got this. And I pull out these parts and I start to assemble this thing. And when it's done, I feel like I'm the champion of the world. You know, I've done it. The table is complete. Well done. Like you married me. You're such a lucky woman, you know. <laughs> and it's the easiest thing in the world. She probably could have done it like quicker on her own without my help. But I feel very, very proud of myself. And that's exactly what uh, Peter is saying here about our faith. In our salvation, we have been given everything that we need to live a godly life as is. We don't need to look somewhere else. We don't need some special guide. We don't need some special revelation. We don't need anything extra. Everything has been included in our salvation for us to live the life that Jesus has called us to live. That means that you don't need to stay stuck in those old patterns of life, those old ways of thinking, the old life you used to live before you knew Jesus. Actually, you've been given everything you need to live a new and godly life by the power of the Spirit. But Peter goes on and he builds off of that. And he says this in verse 5. For this very reason, because of that, because you've been given everything you need for life and godliness, make every effort like an interesting phrase, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection or brotherly love and to mutual affection love. I hope you got all of that. For if you profess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think you've got to see this tension between verse 3 and 4 and verse 5 and what carries on. Verse 3 and 4 is what God has done for us already. Verse 5 to 9 is kind of what we need to do in response to that. So make every effort to live this out because you've been given everything you need to live a godly life already. Do you see the tension? I think some of you are looking there and you're going, hmm, I don't know about this. Right, that sounds a little bit fishy. Sounds a bit like works to me. That doesn't sound like grace. Whoa, 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 whoa. Peter's put that in the Bible, but that's that's nonsense. That's burn him at the stake. That's heresy. You know, that's a bad thing. Some of you are sitting there thinking Ephesians two says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. How can Peter put that in there? Make every effort. 
when everything that actually we receive in our salvation is done by the grace of God. It's not what we do that saves us, it's what Jesus has already done. Okay, now that you've got that off your chest, now that you've shared what you were thinking, Ephesians 2 goes on just a little bit more, and it says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. The whole idea there is that Jesus does everything that we need to be saved. But now in this place of salvation, God has got plans for your life, purposes for your life, things that he wants you to do for him, not to save you, not to make him love you, but because of what he's already done in your life. He's got plans and works for you to do. Paul actually writes about this in his own life and his calling and his purpose. And he says in Colossians 1 verse 29, For this, for this thing that God has taken hold of me for, for this purpose, this call, for this I toil, struggling, or some translations say striving, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And it's this tension of God's work, our work again. For this I toil, struggling. It's this Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get the word agony from. Obviously, doing what God had called him to do was agonizing. It was hard work. And you might be sitting there, but I've always been told that God gives me grace for the things he calls me to. Well, he does. But sometimes those things are really hard. For this, I toil struggling with all his power, all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The work of the Spirit empowering and working through us to do his things. It's our work and God's work. That's the Christian life. The gospel is opposed to earning, not effort. I'm sure some of you have heard that before. It's a quote by Dallas Willard. Actually, Peter's not saying here that we need to add anything to our lives to earn God's love, to earn our salvation, to earn a place in heaven or anything like that. No, he's just saying we need a little bit of elbow grease in our faith. We need a little bit of effort. We need to work hard at this stuff because God has given us everything we need, all the power we need to live this godly life. So Peter says, add to your faith or supplement. And when I read that word supplement in some of the other versions, I thought of all these kind of natural health supplements and vitamins that people are taking to kind of be healthy and strong and grow well, you know. So I'd love you to picture that. Almost as Peter says, add to your faith, he's talking about these things that we add to be strong and healthy and grow. A supplement is something added to something else in order to enhance it. And that's what he's speaking about here. Like, Every single one of us who follow Jesus should have a holy dissatisfaction with where we are. Actually, I don't know Jesus as much as I would like to. I'm not as mature in the faith as I would like to be. I'm not as holy as I would like to be. I'm not as fruitful as I would like to be. Whatever it is, actually, God, I want more of you and I want more of what you've got for me. Would you fill me and empower me to walk into that stuff? That's what he's talking about there. We would be dissatisfied with where we're at and we'd be wanting to grow and go forward all the time. I guess what Peter's saying here is actually our faith or our salvation is the foundation that we build everything else on. So for me as a 12-year-old, that was when I started. The foundation was laid, what Jesus had done for me. And since then, I'm wanting to build on those things all of the stuff that he talks about, goodness and knowledge and self-control. I want to build those things on. So I put to death, I get rid of the old life that was built, and I build up the new life of Jesus, the new kingdom life of God advancing through my life, the salvation life that I found inside of him. So we make every effort to add to our faith these seven things. You ready for what they are? Number one is goodness, which is like virtue or moral excellence. And I think this would be like the, the lamest one to have if we read it this way. 
I just want to get like a pass mark in being a decent Christian and not do the really bad sins. If that's how you read, add goodness to your faith, you're missing what Peter's saying. Because Peter's actually talking about by the power of the Spirit, putting to death all the sinful stuff and junk. You know the stuff I was talking about? The stuff that we open up and the Spirit shows us? Putting that stuff to death and building up new godly habits and ways in our lives. It's going to be simple, small, daily habits we're adding that we're growing in goodness and godliness. Second thing is he says, make every effort to add knowledge to your faith. Now this is not just information. I think there's too many Christians that know a lot of information about the Bible. We know a lot about what Jesus has said. We've memorized verses, we've read books, whatever it is, but we're not doing anything with it. We're not applying it. We're not living it out. We're not obeying it. It's just stuff we know instead of stuff applied to our lives. And this is what Peter's saying here, is what are you doing to grow in knowledge of Jesus and his ways? What are you actively doing? Because I think some of us have this view that is probably shaped more than by the matrix than the Bible, that maybe at the end as Nathan leads this last song, the grants preached after we've done all of this stuff, I'm just going to stand in worship and there's going to be like this direct download with what I need, you know? Kind of like in the Matrix when they need to fly a helicopter. So they go, operator, helicopter program. It's downloaded in. Five seconds later, you can fly a helicopter, you know? This is not what Peter's talking about. That doesn't happen. Peter's talking about an intentionality in us growing in knowledge. Actually make every effort to add knowledge to your faith by intentionally reading the Bible, reading a Christian book, listening to some good Christian podcasts, discussing the scriptures with a friend, wrestling with and finding answers to the hard questions that are in the Bible. So actually, we wouldn't be passive about this. He's talking about a very active, intentional job that we do. Make every effort. I was reading through 2 Timothy a couple of weeks ago. and It says in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, which is a powerful thing. We think about the fact that every word in this book is breathed out by God, is from him, and is useful for us. We probably read this book very differently. Every scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God... If you're a Christian here today, you're called to be a servant of God. Some of you might still be exploring this, but if you take that step, you're a servant of God. And the word is given to us so that us as servants may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of us don't feel thoroughly equipped to minister because we're not spending any time in this book, not reading it through and meditating on it and memorizing it and letting it do its work inside of us. But actually, as this book gets inside of us, the word of God gets inside of us, it equips us thoroughly for everything that God has called us to. The next one is self-control. To the Greeks, self-control was about controlling your passions and your desires inside of you. And maybe, um, yeah, rather than being controlled by them. But maybe for us today as Christians, the idea is, am I controlled by what my heart wants or am I controlled by what God's heart wants? You know, what is it? Like there's probably this battle going on in many of our lives and definitely in our world today. Are we going to live a life of self-fulfillment or self-denial? Because Jesus calls us to the self-denial one. It doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound pleasant at all. But he's promised us the life that is truly life in self-denial. You know, that's where it's found. It's not found in chasing after self-fulfillment. Some of us in this room have found that already. But actually, will we choose this thing or the thing that Jesus calls us to, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him? The next thing is perseverance or steadfastness or endurance. And this is a hard one to talk about. 
because some of us are in this kind of season at the moment, you know, going through hard things, we're discouraged, we're down, we're asking, where is God? Like, why is he letting this happen? Why isn't he answering my prayer? What is going on with this timing? But this kind of perseverance is, I guess, faith under pressure. It's in these tough times that we are continuing to trust God and hold on to him and have faith in him and follow him. We're choosing to get up early and still read the Bible and pray. We're choosing to come here on Sundays, choosing to commit to our life groups and all of those things that we do because we know that they're good for us and that God is good and faithful and kind even when we can't see him at work. I don't know if you know this, but the most common command and promise in the Bible is do not fear, I am with you. Command, do not fear, promise, I am with you. Maybe that's something for you this morning. The next one is godliness. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what godliness is about, imitating God, the way he would speak, the way he would act the way he would think, the way he would treat other people, the way he would make decisions. That's what godliness is. And there's been this tension that we've seen here in 1 Peter 2, because the first thing, or 2 Peter 1, wherever we are, the first thing is you've been given everything you need to live a godly life, and now it's make every effort to add godliness to your faith. It's God's work and our work, this idea going throughout this chapter. The next thing is mutual affection or brotherly love. Now, this is the Greek word Philadelphia. I don't know if you knew this, but that city in the USA named Philadelphia means brotherly love. That cheese that you love to eat on your crackers with a bit of, what is that? Sweet chili sauce? Philadelphia. Brotherly love cheese. That's what it's all about. And this is talking specifically about the church. It's about the way we treat one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God or the community of God. Because actually our vertical faith needs to change our horizontal relationships. If your relationship with God doesn't change how you treat people, then actually this is in question. Like, does this even exist? And the last one is love. It's this Greek idea, agape. It's the selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus that we see on the cross. He would lay down his life for us. It's the kind of love we're called to have towards him and to have towards other people. And Peter says to us, make every effort to add those seven things to your life. Not make some effort, not, ah, consider doing this. Make every effort to add these things to your faith. Because if you do, you'll stop yourself from being unfruitful and unproductive or ineffective in your relationship with Jesus. This is a knowing God issue. If we don't add these things to our lives, we won't know him as well as we can. And Peter tells us, he tells us that if we don't add these things, because I guess it is all of our choice, If we don't add these things to our faith, what's going to happen? Our relationship with God is going to become like a bit of a loveless marriage. It's going to be like, well, God and I are together. You know, he's everywhere, so he's with us. And I speak to him from time to time. And I ask him for certain things. He's got my, like, to-do list, prayer list that I send to God in the mornings, maybe in the evenings. And we eat meals together because, you know, you say grace before you eat, whatever it is. But the rest of the time, it's just kind of me doing things my own way. That's what he's talking about there, that we can end up in this apathetic, loveless relationship with Jesus. It's religion. It's dry. It's awful. I don't think that's why any of us are here today. But then on the other hand, Peter writes and he says, do you want to know Jesus? And do you want your life to be fruitful, productive, and effective for him? And very simply, he says, then lean into his power, lean into his grace, and add these seven things to your faith. 
I'll end with this last verse in verse 9. After giving us these seven things to do, he says, But but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Another translation says, They are so nearsighted as if to be blind. What they're kind of saying is, what can happen to us? It's in the busyness of life and everything that's going on, we can be so consumed with these things that are just in front of us, you know, nearsighted, just in front of us, that we become blind to the big picture of reality. We become blind to what God is doing in the universe. We become blind to him and Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom that is breaking into our world and why we're here and the big purposes we've got. And we just see these things and they consume us. And it's a huge danger for us in our world because there is so much going on. There is so much busyness. There is so much stress. There's so much options and entertainment that we can just be consumed with these things. And we forget who we are. We forget that we're a child of God, a son or daughter. We forget that we've been redeemed from our sin, forgiven. We forget that we're his child. We forget all of these things he's done for us. And we start to be defined by the things just in front of us. Just the busyness things, the the things we have to do. Sometimes they're not even important, they're just urgent, and they're barking for our attention all the time. And those things start to define us rather than Jesus and the gospel. And if this is you today, is an old famous hymn, which has some advice for us. This is really what Peter is saying to us in this chapter. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's you today. That's all you need to do. Peter doesn't say, when I was a young Christian, oh, they don't make them like they used to. You know, Back in the day, we used to walk five miles to get to church through the snow and the sleet and the hill. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, listen, the Christians of today are lacking willpower and commitment and need to try harder. It's not what he says. He says, the reason that you are unfruitful and unproductive in your relationship with God, the reason that you're nearsighted and blind is because you've forgotten that Jesus forgave you of your sins. Very simply, we've forgotten what happened when I was 12 years old at that school in Sarnia, that moment where God met with me, and I left that room like washed clean of my past, washed clean of what I'd done, given a new life, given a new identity, free from all of that stuff. Knowing that God loved me, his love had been poured into my heart. Knowing that I was his child, that I was saved, that I had a new identity. I left there a new man, a new creation. And what he's saying is we forget that. We've forgotten what he's done. That's why we're in the place that we're in. And if that's you today, I'd love to just pray for all of us. Do you mind standing with me? Can we just close our eyes together as the band's coming up? If you maybe um, are here today and you really do want to grow in your faith, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and that, that whole position of being stalled is super true for you. You know you've stalled. You know you're stuck. You know you're not moving forward and you want to. Maybe you can just raise your hands to God. I'm not going to ask you to leave the room. I'm not going to embarrass you in front of anyone. Maybe you can just raise your hand as a sign of surrender to him, just saying, God, this is me. I'm serious about this. I want to go forward. I really want to grow. Maybe this morning you need to lean into his power and to ask him to help you to put those seven things into place in your life. So I just ask you, Holy Spirit, for so many of us today that you would help us. Please remind us of what you've done. Remind us of your forgiveness. Remind us 
of what it means to be saved. Remind us of what it means to be a Christian. Help us to remember what you've forgiven us of. I pray even now we'd experience your grace and experience your love. That you'd take guilt and shame off of us. You'd free us from stuff. We actually want to run forward from today, Lord. We don't want to be hung up by all of this stuff anymore. We want to go forward with you. So I pray today that you would help us. Help us to make the decisions we need to make. Help us to stop what we need to stop and start what we need to. Not in our own strength, but in yours, Lord. In yours. And maybe if you're here today and you're, you're realizing you're like me as a 12-year-old, your heart's pounding, you're like, I, I need Jesus. I want him. I want to be forgiven of my sins. If that's you today, you want to start a new life with God. You want a relationship with God. Would you raise your hands just like high to him today? To a father who loves you, to a father who wants you, to a father who wants to receive you and forgive you. Would you ask him just to forgive your sin and wash you clean? Would you ask him just to take that stuff from you and to give you a new life? Would you ask him to pour his love into your heart and that you would know you are his child, that you would leave here a different person, free, empowered, changed, full of hope, full of joy? I ask you, Holy Spirit, just to do a lot of work in us as a group of people today. Lord, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste our time. We ask you to come upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.